Song number 313, Brother Randall has requested that we mark and we'll stand at the close of the lesson and sing that as a hymn of encouragement. And as we are gathered together this morning for the concourse of our lesson, having already been blessed with the opportunity of prayer, the opportunity of a bit of fellowship, and the character of singing these glorious hymns of praise and adoration to God, it's a bit interesting that some of the songs that have been chosen, we have already sung about a glorious place known as heaven, a fantastic place wherein perhaps the greatest of all reunions will take place. And in fact, there's no perhaps to that, for I'd like to entitle the lesson today, The Greatest Reunion. And the lesson text that was read just a moment ago from 2 Samuel 12 will be a text that we'll revisit at the proper time in the lesson. Some introductory remarks or thoughts perhaps in regard to this. How thankful indeed we can appreciate the glory that's ours for the great blessing of the sacrifice of Jesus, the fantastic plan of salvation that he put in place, the church that he purchased with the shedding of his blood, all of these things. Though we are perhaps appreciated to some degree, may we never allow that to lapse far from our mind for what great blessings you and I have been able to enjoy. In fact, near the top of that screen and on toward its middle, some of the greatest of blessings, of course, we can appreciate don't relate at all to money, the jobs that we, of course, find so needful to provide for ourselves and our family. But think about the tenderness of, of family, perhaps what your devoted spouse and your loving children mean to you, or in fact, some of the other great things that you feel so apprised in life to have been able to enjoy. Perhaps many around the world don't come close to appreciating some of the grandeur of the blessings that we feel. Might I suggest that we, in fact, consider the greatest of reunions as also a tremendous degree of blessing and a fantastic hope that relates to it. In fact, as we think about the nature of reunion itself, perhaps we ought to at least think about the word first. What does the word mean? To what does it seem to refer? It's composed of two pieces or parts. There's the prefix re, re, and then the word union. As we know, the word re is a prefix. It just identifies to go back or to do again or to renew or something like that. That word reunion simply identifies a state of oneness or a state of unity. And thus, to put them together, reunion thus expresses the fact of coming back together when separation has been the case. To come back to make a harmonious state of unity when that unity has at some point in the past been broken. Reunion. I would suspect that we each can think about the way the word is used from time to time. Maybe we think about high school reunions. When individuals, some number of years after they've graduated from high school, that class comes back together for an evening, remaking acquaintances, perhaps learning a bit about what one another has done in those intervening years. Or maybe there are family reunions. Once a year, maybe you get together at a pavilion or perhaps grandparents' house, and maybe some of the fondnesses of memories from days gone by can flood your mind, thinking about perhaps coming together in when Grandpa has the house a bit too warm at Christmas and there's 25 or 30 people there, but it's a time to see individuals that share a sense of commonness and to share some things that aren't shared with a lot of other people. For many people, reunions are pretty special. They hold a lot of fond memories and a lot of fond thoughts.
I'd submit to you, though, that the greatest of reunions is not either of those I've mentioned or others that are like them. The greatest one is described in the Word of God. Let's turn and make an interesting discussion this morning, I hope, about the nature of the grandest, the greatest of all reunions. As we begin that, some initial thoughts about God's goodness to us might be in order. As we appreciate the greatest of the blessings He has showered upon us, certainly we can think, as we mentioned earlier, about the devotion of a family, the preciousness of children, the joy they bring to our life, the kindness and compassion and companionship and friendship of a devoted mate and spouse. Those things are truly magnificent, and they are part of God's provision for the happiness and the sustenance of the human family. But might we also appreciate the Bible speaks not just of a physical family. There is a spiritual family as well. On many occasions, the sacred writers very pointedly set forth the fact that there is this spiritual family and that it has all the characteristics that would make a family bonded together with strength, with fortitude, and with love. I've listed some passages that I would wish us to consider. In Galatians 4, beginning in verse 5, there the inspired apostle, in fact, made this statement. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son." As Paul wrote the Galatians, he reminded them that among the greatest of the blessings God has set forth, might we not lose sight of this one, that we aren't merely servants in the house, but he has sent forth his spirit into our hearts and gives us the opportunity to call him Father. And that tender word Abba is used, Abba Father. In fact, that word is one that we likely can understand from this perspective. This day and time, at least in English, we understand that often one of the first words that a little baby learns is maybe dada, dad. And that's a tender expression on the part of that youngster to the affection and the character that that man is his father. The word Abba in Hebrew fulfills that same role. A little Hebrew baby, first coming into the world, perhaps one of the very first sentences or statements that that child might learn is Abba, a very tender reference to his earthly father. Paul said to you and I that it's true we appreciate the fatherhood of God, the greatness, the discipline, all that associates to what it means that he is our father. But he says we also can at least have in mind this notion of Abba, a very tender one-on-one -on -one personal relationship, appreciative of the fact he cares for me, I care for him, he's my father. And in that sense, we are no longer merely just servants, we're sons of God. We have been given the power to be members of his family. There's that notion of family, isn't it? But look at yet another aspect in Romans 8, 24. Again, the same inspired writer there says we are saved by hope. Hope for what? Hope for whom? He, in the course of that discussion, identifies the marvelous bounds of a coming together of family in the marvelous climes beyond. That place we understand to be the concourse of our hope, heaven itself, 
a marvelous place where those children, his family, shall be with him forevermore. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 13 and 14, we will recall that even in this life we appreciate that we're baptized into the body. We become members of God's family upon earth by faith. And as members of that family, the joyousness that's ours to appreciate that we're the benefactors of God and the very ones that have in hope the promise and guarantee that He has given us. Some of the passages that perhaps state that even more directly, I have listed at the bottom of that screen. As if these previous texts weren't enough to perhaps lead us to think about the family of God, might I ask you to notice some of these references. In Galatians 6 verse 10, near the close of the Galatian letter, Paul wrote that as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Friend, there is a household of faith. We can think of it as a very real community, an entity, and one can be a part of it. A household of faith. That blessing is truly a magnificent one, isn't it? To be a part of and have the privilege of being a part of that family and that community. In Ephesians 2, verse 19, Paul explicitly there referred to, again, the household of God. God is the patriarch of the house. He's the father. He's the absolute head, if you please, of all of that. And as we appreciate the glory of it, you and I are thus able to be members in it, part of that household described in the Holy Scriptures. In Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, Inasmuch as you and I are heirs of God, and that's what happens in families so often, isn't it? One appreciates the inheritance that children have in that family. Among other things that they inherit, one of them is a name. For instance, that child when born into this world takes the name of the father. That's the way in which that type thing works, isn't it? Have you and I given much thought to the fact when we came into the family, we were given a name. We weren't there to choose it. It was given to us, bequeathed to us, by the very nature of membership in the family. We're Christians. We are bound together by the timeless blood of Christ. And in, in being bound together in that fashion, the love that permeates the family, emanating from the Father, enlivens us in the family to be and do what we ought to be and do. The character of that name set forth in 1 Peter 4.16 as well as Acts 26, verse 28. In both of those passages, what was the name there re referenced? Didn't, in fact, Paul tell Agrippa, as even Agrippa responded, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And that text in 1 Peter 4, 16, If any man suffer, let him not be ashamed on this behalf, but let him glorify God in that name. What name? the name Christian, the name employed earlier in that passage. The recognition of then the name we've been given identifies we've been bound together in a family. And the family of God's faithful, the glorious wonder of what is set forth here, is only highlighted in the bond that I have at the very bottom of the screen. The bond, of course, is the avenue of love, again, emanating from the Father. Jesus, did he not say in John 13, 34, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, 
if you have love one for another. Later, we appreciate in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, that you weren't redeemed from corruptible things as with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You see, those outside the church, those not members of the family, those outside that community have not yet appropriated to themselves the blessing of Christ's blood, and they've not been given that name, and they're not inheritors from God. They're not members in the family. But to you and I, as membership in that family, the glorious understanding of all the blessings that come with it, those blessings identified in Ephesians 1-3, all spiritual blessings come through Christ. Might we thus notice that that leads us to see that this discussion is taking a rather interesting turn. For we well understand that physical natures and the physical aspect upon earth are such that they don't continue unabated and they don't continue unaltered and unchanged. For isn't it true that death seems to sever our physical relationships? No matter the degree of love we may have had for parents or grandparents or dear family friends or others whom we may know, there comes that point when death severs it. That person or us, one, is not here any longer. That corpse is laid in the bosom of the earth, and it precedes its return unto the ground, unto the dust out of which it was made. As the degree of that severing takes place, there is still the impressive degree of hope and description provided to the human family, to those as we appreciate the text of James 2.26. For just as truly as the body without the spirit is dead, so then faith without works is dead. That body without its spirit again is described as being dead, but the spirit has not ceased to be. It has merely gone elsewhere, that realm you and I call Hades from the New Testament, it certainly is not non-existent. It merely is awaiting the time to re-inhabit a body. I wonder, can there be a reunion when that takes place? Though there may have been a severing in terms of the flesh, can we hope for a grand reunion someday with those sweet individuals who have placed their faith and obedient trust in the God of heaven? Perhaps as we look to completing that journey, Look at some of the additional statements that not only provide a hopefulness for that, but provide God's absolute guarantee of it. Let's notice a few passages. We earlier noticed 2 Samuel 12, verse 23. Listen to these great statements of that second king of Israel. David on that occasion was in the position of the fact that his, the son born to he and Bathsheba had just died. That son, as David wept over him, and as David reacted to that death, made this statement. <clears throat> as that was read a moment ago, did the statement ring clear to us? Did it present to us the grandest and the hope of what David had in mind? He said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. It is true, isn't it, that this life presents a one-way journey from cradle to grave. It goes in one direction only. But notice that David held within his heart and within his mind the greatness of this thought, I shall go to him. Where he currently was, that babe that had passed forward, who then resided in the faraway realms of Hades, David said, I shall go to him. 
David held the affirmation and hope that there was going to be a reunion with that youngster, that little babe. There was going to be a time that a reunion would take place. Perhaps that thought is only amplified by other passages that are before us. As we not only think of that one, consider with me some of these additional ones. It is an absolute statement, isn't it? That there's coming a realization of judgment for everyone. Let's notice who is gathered there. Matthew 25, verse 32. Jesus, as he made reference to that vivid event, said, And when all nations shall be gathered, who is exempted? Who will not then be raised on that great morning of resurrection? Everyone, both the good and the wicked, shall be raised on that occasion. And upon being raised, we appreciate then the judgment will take place. As we contemplate the character of the judgment, Notice the hope that's held out for us in the closing two chapters of God's book in Revelation 21 and 2. As heaven is described, the marvelous wonder of what's not there, such things as crying and pain and separation and death and the curse associated with sin, none of that being present. There is a description of those then who've been obedient, granted entrance into the glorious climes. I wonder what kind of reunion that will be when the faithful, the worthy, the obedient of all the ages from the dawning of time shall be thus blessed with the entrance into heaven itself. Isn't that going to be the greatest of all reunions? Those passages I've listed there take us back to the words of Jesus. Before his crucifixion in John 14, on a night when in fact his body it seems was bothered a bit by the agony of what the next morning would bring by the turmoil that was going to come his way he of course knew what they were going to do to his body nailing nails through it piercing his head with a crown of thorns to those apostles that were there gathered with him after participating in the Passover with them he had some very tender and uplifting words for them and it reads like this let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And there receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Those words have been the anchor of many a tense moment in your life and mine, I'm sure. To hear the Lord say to these agitated apostles, they were bothered in their anxiety. They had a sense that something seemed to be not right. This Passover was not like all the others they'd experienced. Later that night, they were going to see the Lord arrested. Later that night, they were going to see him bound and led off to the high priest. Later in the wee hours of the morning, they were going to see a mockery of a trial take place, and they were going to flee. All of them were going to leave him. Later on that next morning, at the nine o'clock hour, they were going to see nails nailed in his hands and in his feet. I wonder if they remembered him say, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I'm coming back and I'll receive you into myself that where I am there you may be also. That sounds to me like the greatest of reunions, doesn't it? The opportunity for the ages of all time, the faithful, 
to come to a point of appreciating exactly what all their hope has been about. The hopefulness to sustain faithfulness in this life and the great reward that God has promised to the faithful, that to inherit, that to participate in, and that to experience. As these texts before us read, they sound so wonderful and so lovely, don't they? But notice, David hinted at this earlier, maybe it's worthy of some more extended description. Will there be recognition after death? When we arrive at that place called heaven, will we know each other? Will the family relationship remain? We know here in this life, as Denise is my wife, I love her. I know her. Now certainly, as we appreciate the fact we know and love one another in our family, part of that is the deep understanding and recognition we have of each other. In the church, we know one another by name. We have an understanding of strengths and weaknesses and perhaps failures of days gone by, forgivenesses that have taken place, and the hope of what lay before us. Will there be recognition after this life has passed? In heaven, will I know Denise and will she know me? Will we know each other as brothers and sisters in Christ? That seems like a point worthy of some reflection. The Bible isn't silent on that topic. In fact, I've listed that separately on this additional screen. Let's give some thought to the idea of recognition. First of all, go back to David's statement again. David said, I shall go to him. He used personal pronouns in both instances, referring to himself, referring to the lad. Furthermore, he said, he shall not return to me. David held out the firmness of recognizing that youth in heaven, recognizing the spirit of this one now departed from him. David's statement seems not to have the fullness of sense or understanding if that recognition is not a presumed part of it. But that only leads us to several others that might be worthy of thought. Might we revisit the book of Genesis a moment? And look at some passages that in our study of Genesis, we've had occasion to note. Let's bring them together and look at one other aspect of them. With regard to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with respect to all three, the following statement, and I quote, is made. He was gathered unto his people. That was said of Abraham in Genesis 25.8. It was said in Genesis 35.29 of Isaac. And it was said of in Genesis 49:33 of Jacob. One of the points that perhaps has often been a reflection from that is to think that that merely meant that the person's body was buried beside his ancestors. Perhaps the body was placed in the ground very close to where the family cemetery was. But I would submit to you, and as I've, we've noted in our study, that cannot be what that means because very clearly what was true in terms of some of them, we notice that the statement was made before the body was buried. That means it couldn't have merely had reference to the place where the corpse was laid. For example, in Jacob's case, it was expressly said that he was gathered into his people, gathered into his fathers, and that took place many, many days before he was actually buried. We might remember that there was a morning 70 days for him and then an extended journey to the place as we just studied this morning as to where he was actually buried. Several months elapsed from the time it was said he was gathered to his people 
until he actually had his body buried. Being gathered to his people means something different than just where the body was interred. As an added emphasis, look at Aaron and Moses. In Deuteronomy 32 verse 50, as well as Deuteronomy 34 verse 6, we have some interesting statements where that same phrase is related to Moses. And let's remember something interesting about Moses. God expressly told him, You ascend upon the mount, and you there will be gathered into your people. But the interesting thing is, where was Moses buried? We will remember, no man knows. Remember, upon his death there on the mount, God buried him. Clearly, his body was not taken back to the place where he grew up. He was buried in this distant place from his homeland. And in that instance, we can there see the guarantee that being gathered to one's people had nothing to do with where the body was interred. When Abraham, when Isaac, when Jacob, when Moses, and when Aaron were gathered to their people, it had reference to their spirit's journey to that place after this life. They're being gathered with those of like faith in God who had passed on before. That's what that means, being gathered to one's people. And as such, what great hope that enlivens into your mind and mine, that when the time comes to shuffle off the old mortal coil of this flesh, as the poet once put it, we then have the realization of being gathered unto our people, the people of God, and that great reunion will soon be able to take place. In Luke chapter 9, verse 33, we have a rather startling scene on the Mount of Transfiguration there where Jesus, of course, was transfigured, but in that transfiguration he appeared with two Old Testament worthies. One of them was Moses and one of them was Elijah. And the fact remains that Moses had been dead over 15 centuries. And the fact is that Elijah had been dead over eight centuries in time. And Peter recognized them. He knew exactly who they were. He knew, in fact, he even said, Lord, shall we construct three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elijah? Peter knew who they were. He recognized them. There will be recognition after this life. We have every appreciation that when the beautiful place of heaven is reached, that you and I as brothers, as sisters, as members in the family will know one another. And furthermore, can we not see that Paul's view of his own brethren even allows us to see he had that same hope. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 14, he used a very specific pronoun. He made reference to you as the recipients of God's blessing and the gift. And inasmuch as you is employed, he didn't leave it general. The Corinthians were going to be the inheritors and thus possess that recognition after this life had passed. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Paul again directly said, You shall be my joy and crown. That statement seems to have little meaning if in just a general fashion all the faithful would in fact be his joy and crown. Paul made reference to the Thessalonians as the specific ones, at least in part, who would be those that would be Paul's crown and joy on that great and final day. It thus seems that the memories, the characteristics of this life, will be those that also, in terms of the goodnesses associated therewith, that will carry forward beyond death. In fact, it might also be that though that's not the central element of the lesson, 
it does also seem that memory will also remain for those that are not the faithful either. In fact, in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, what are some of the things that the rich man remembered? Well, first of all, he knew that there were brothers here on earth, and he knew that they weren't saved, and he knew that they were coming to the same place he was if they didn't change. And so he pleaded to go and preach to them. One of the greatest agonies of hell is going to be memory. I had the opportunity to obey the gospel, but I didn't. I had the opportunity when they invited me to go to services, and I didn't go. I had the chances, and look where I'm at, because I didn't. Just as surely as one of the most agonizing things of hell will be memory, one of the greatest blessings of heaven is going to be memory. To remember good times with faithful brethren on earth, to remember, in fact, in clear vividness what Jesus did for me and what a great blessing and benefit the church has been as well. All of that helps us appreciate that the memories that we make now, the fellowship, the brotherhood, the communion we enjoy now is but a foretaste of what it's going to be then when we shall surround the throne of God forevermore in glorious worship, ringing hymns of praise to His name, Perhaps the anthem of Revelation 5.12 says it best. When we understand that blessed be the Lamb, for in the strength, the honor, the glory, all of that due into His name, and we'll be able to give it to Him abundantly forevermore. The greatest of reunions, in fact, the one set before us. There are some, though, who might say that if memory persists, and if those kinds of memories are going to be at our disposal, won't that mean heaven will be somewhat less than the best it could be if I remember that there is someone on earth, but they're not in heaven? That means there's only one other place they could be. Will that not tarnish heaven? I'd submit the Bible seems to give a hint that in the absolute nature of when the judgment has happened, and we finally realize in full realization the absolute majesty and awesomeness of God, and we at that point appreciate the absolute magnitude of sin and what it's worth. At that point, we will understand the fullness of God's judgment. For any not in heaven, we will then will understand that God's justness and His righteousness brings the right thing about in absolute regard. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 1 to 4 seems to hint at that as well as Revelation 20 verse 4. We can be assured of this. Nothing in heaven is going to be marred with pain, with thoughts that are terrible, with anything that's the byproduct of sin. It will not tarnish that place. We're guaranteed it in Revelation 21, 27. And so we might ask as we come near the close of the lesson this morning, the greatest reunion is going to take place, and it's going to be when heaven's doors are flung open wide for the faithful. When there, can you imagine the rejoicing that's going to take place? When a lifetime of labor, perhaps insult, revile, and sorrow at the hands of the devil himself, all of it will have been worth it, and the faithful will enjoy the blessed words of God forevermore, surrounding his throne, appreciating his character, and the great power and life that eternity will then bring. You might have noted in the description I've given of that place, it's also true here on earth that reunions are somewhat limited. Not everybody comes to a reunion. 
when some particular family has a reunion, well, there's no reason for me to be there if I'm not associated with that family. So, too, it's going to be in heaven. Not every human being is going to be at this greatest reunion. In fact, in terms of sheer number, there will be relatively few. Is your name on the invitation list for that reunion? You see, the book of life is the invitation list. And if your name is not in that book, you're not going to be at that reunion. In fact, when it takes place, you're going to recognize the horror of not being there. Where do you stand today? Are you thus at this point in such a position and case in life to where your name is on the book of life and hence you are currently in such a way to be invited to the reunion? The greatest reunion. David said, I shall go to him. Jesus said, there's many mansions waiting. That word in the Greek has reference to rooms. It's as though you can picture a massive hotel. All the faithful have a room there. Is your room reserved? It needs to be. It ought to be. Christ died for it to be. If it's not, why do you delay? Why do you wait? Why procrastinate any longer? Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Harden not your hearts in the day of provocation, Hebrews 3, 12. If we could be of assistance today in your initial obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can become a member of the family and look forward to that great reunion, you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, Acts 8.37. You need to repent of your sins, Acts 2.38. You need to confess the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior, 1 Timothy 6, verse 12. You need to be baptized for the remission of sins. That statement of 1 Peter 3, verse 21 tells us baptism saves us. Once you've completed that, remain faithful. If you have stumbled and fell, if you no longer are faithful and others know about that, come and ask for their forgiveness and ask for God's forgiveness. Our prayers of strength, God has promised to answer. And if we could be of help today in that prayer or in your initial response to the gospel invitation, won't you come and let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.